Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Affairs and Trauma definitely two of the most challenging issues systemic therapists face when working with couples. Both the rupture and the breach of trust undermine the very foundation on which committed monogamous relationships are built. In the treatment of an affair, there are several key elements that couples need to work through as a team. That means working through the crisis phase, rebuilding trust, Acknowledging the pain that infidelity causes, initiating repair, and creating and restoring a dynamic sex life. There's other issues like choosing to stay or leave the relationship, which is separate from the decision to forgive or not forgive. Today on the AMFT podcast, we're going to dive deeply into proven research-based approach for treating couples impacted by the trauma of infidelity. And we're going to learn some clinical skills that will empower your couples to recover after significant breaches of trust. And we're going to do that with really an expert, not only in this issue, but in couples therapy, in the field of systemic therapy, family psychology, someone I've wanted to talk to for a very long time, Dr. Doug Snyder. He's a professor of psychology and previously served as the director of clinical training at Texas A&M in College Station. He earned his bachelor's degree from Wittenberg University in 1974. He received his doctoral degree from UNC Chapel Hill in 1978 and interned at Duke University Medical Center. Prior to his appointment at Texas A&M, he served on the faculty at Wayne State in Detroit and the University of Kentucky, where he also served as the director of clinical training and the associate dean in the College of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Snyder has been recognized internationally for his research on marital assessment and his outcome research on couples therapy. If you've used any assessments, you've probably heard of the MSI, the Marital Satisfaction Inventory. That is Doug's creation. A four-year follow-up study of his couples treatment research was funded by uh, the National Institute of Mental Health was recognized by the AMFT as outstanding research contribution in 1991. Doug received the 2005 award from the American Psychological Association for Distinguished Contributions to Family Psychology, and in 2015, the Distinguished Psychologist Award for Lifetime Contributions to Psychology and Psychotherapy from APA. He is a fellow of the American Psychological Association in divisions of couple and family psychology, clinical psychology, military psychology, 
psychotherapy, and quantitative and qualitative methods. He is a true scientist practitioner. He has served as the editor of the Clinician's Research Digest and associate editor for the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology and for the Journal of Family Psychology. And if you've ever taken a couples therapy class, there's a good chance uh, you've read what is the Bible in the field, now in its fifth edition, The Clinical Handbook of Couple Therapy, published by Guilford, uh, along with Jay LeBeau, another previous guest and, and a personal mentor on the podcast. But we're talking about today two books he's written with his colleagues, former guest on the show, Don Balkum and Christina Coop Gordon, Around Infidelity. One book written for your clients and one book written for you, the clinician. And that's the one that has a new edition out right now. It is a standard in our field. Helping Couples Get Past the Affair, A Clinician's Guide. I really hope you enjoy this conversation that's going to provide you with empirically grounded strategies for helping your clients overcome that initial shock, understanding what and why the breach of trust happened, and thinking clearly about their best interest before they act, whether that's to reconcile or not. We'll be back at the conclusion of the interview. Working as an independent marriage and family therapist can be very rewarding. But working outside of the typical W-2 employee structure can be a difficult transition for many of us. That's where a company like Opolis comes in. Opolis is helping independent therapists focus on what they do best. While Opolis manages the back end. Opolis leverages group buying power, helping you save up to 50% on premium healthcare options through Cigna. Through their platform, you can receive bi-monthly pay stubs, annual W-2s, and compliant tax withholding and remittance. Learn more at Opolis, that's O-P-O-L-I-S dot co slash therapist. Opolis dot co slash therapist. Eli, back on the AAMFT podcast, I am getting to talk to someone today that I've admired from afar in my 23-year career, have never gotten to meet personally, but have been a big fan of his work. Uh, and if you've ever read the handbook of couple therapy, you know about this man. If you've ever used a marital satisfaction inventory, you know about this man. But today we're talking about one of his clinical interests. Dr. Doug Snyder, who we will be talking about today, and it's now second edition, Getting Past the Affair, a program to help you cope, heal, and move on together or apart. It's a very apt title and so happy to have you here, Doug. The first question is always, we like to know about our guest, our expert, your venture into systemic thinking couple therapy, and then specifically your interest in working with couples who are trying to recover from infidelity? Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be able to share the story and, and to invite couple therapists everywhere from all professions into this important work. 20 years ago, when we began this work together, it, gosh, it seems sometimes like yesterday. 
But it was 20 years ago, I was actually on sabbatical from my teaching position here at Texas A&M, and that means that I had uh, one semester without teaching responsibilities, and I could use that extra time to really dig into new areas of clinical interest and training and pursue some new areas of clinical research. And I used uh, one week of that sabbatical to go uh, to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, to visit a really very dear friend and colleague, Don Balcom. He's a professor there at UNC. And, and former and, guest on the podcast, we have talked to Don. He's one of our favorite guests. He's a wonderful person. He's so delightful, very dear to me. But I remember sitting out on his back porch one evening as the sun was going down. It was just a lovely evening. And I turned to him and I said, Don, what do you think is the most important factor in a, a successful long-term relationship? And, and I, I wasn't sure what he would say in response. And he turned to me in his sort of therapeutic voice and said, Doug, what do you think is the most important factor? And I said, I think it's not about communication per se, that's important, but the most important thing is the capacity to repair, to move past not only those sort of daily regrettable incidents that any one of us might have, but really major hurts, uh, injuries, and betrayals. I think it's about repair and about capacity to forgive and move on. And his jaw just dropped because he and his doctoral student, the time, Christy Gordon, uh, who's also a co-author on, on our book, uh, had just started studying uh, forgiveness. And so we talked about that. And how do we examine this? How do we explore this? How do we come to really understand the phenomenon of forgiveness and develop a way of working for couples around recovery from major injuries? And that took us to the topic of infidelity and affairs. And so the history is that our initial interest wasn't about infidelity per se. It was really about forgiveness and recovery and how all of us try to make repair in our intimate relationships. I think one of the things that has profoundly changed how the field views this, and certainly I know it's been influential in my thinking and it resonates with the client's dealing with these issues that I work with is viewing a breach of trust like an infidelity, whether it be emotional, physical, or even financial as a trauma, something almost like a post-traumatic stress response, something that flips your world upside down. And depending uh, if you, the therapist, are the first responder, it can really look like the injured partner, like they have had a traumatic event. I think that's been a significant contribution of you, Don, and Christie's work as well. Could you, you tell us how you developed that trauma frame and then have a true scientist practitioner on the show with us today? I, I want to know about the, the science, what the research tells us about infidelity, because many of our therapists are listening to this show, they're frontline clinicians, they'll never conduct research on their own, but boy, they get asked a lot by clients and they can psychoeducate about what a repair looks like, how long does it take, how you operationalize trust. So uh, I'm curious about the trauma-informed perspective on infidelity and then what the research says. Oh, gosh, you described it perfectly. I think I just want to reflect back and affirm your wording. It absolutely is traumatic. 
And you're right, it's, it can be just as traumatic around uh, emotional uh, infidelity, sexual infidelity. In fact, people have used this model of recovery that we've put together to deal with other kinds of relationship betrayals or trauma, for example, in the areas of substance misuse, relapse, and violations of promises to stay sober. I've used it with a couple where the trauma was around the psychotic phase of a manic depressive disorder where all kinds of bad things can happen. As you said, there could be financial violations. And we drew on the trauma literature because that's what the phenomenon shows. All of the symptoms of intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance, disruptions to sleep, all of the fundamental sort of assumptions about worldview, how you think about yourself and about your partner and your relationship, it is a traumatic experience. And it's really helpful to reflect that back to couples, partly to help the injured partner understand themselves, gosh, what's going on with me? Why am I struggling in this way? But also for the participating partner or the involved partner to understand why is my why is my partner struggling in the, in the ways and the intensity and depth of, of their response? To label it a trauma is that first critical step toward understanding what has happened here. So I appreciate your comment. It's been really one of the sort of pillars of this intervention is viewing infidelity the violation of boundaries from a trauma perspective. So what do we know about the clinical research around infidelity? So that's a great question. Let me try to divide this just in, into two parts. The first is, what do we know about the phenomenon of infidelity? And then the second part of the answers will be about, what do we know about the process of recovery? So first of all, just the research on the phenomenon of infidelity. The most important thing, perhaps, is this is a very prevalent, prevalent phenomenon in terms of lifetime rates of sexual infidelity. For men, it's roughly 25%. For women, 15%. If you throw in there also emotional infidelity, those rates roughly double. For men, it's about 45%. For women, 35%. You think about over the course of a relationship, the risk or the possibility that a major violation of those boundaries in an affair could occur, it's remarkably high. It's one of the top two or three reasons that couples report as the cause of a divorce. Among couple therapists, it's one of the top two or three most difficult issues to treat in a couple relationship. We know that it's associated with emotional health problems, depression, anxiety, as you said, PTSD and trauma, suicidality risks go up, alcohol and substance misuse, intimate partner violence, all of those things are, occur more frequently following the disclosure or discovery of an affair. And so it's, it is a traumatic event that has high prevalence and it has high impact on the partners and the relationship. And I think all infidelity is not equal. And I remember early in my training, I saw Frank Pittman speak of typologies. He had the philanderer, the person that would just get the surface fill up in these 
oh, one night stands, and then you would have with the accidental infidelity where it was usually a one-time thing fueled many times by alcohol, then followed by tremendous regret. Uh, and then the most challenging where you have a full-on romantic and physical affair where if you are the involved partner, you are in love with that third party. What do you think about the assessing and the different typologies of breaches of trust and infidelity? Yeah. Oh gosh. A very, very insightful comments. And I appreciate you speaking to individual differences. It's why that initial assessment is so important, both for you as a therapist to know, okay, what sorts of things do I need to do immediately? And in, in helping the couple understand, okay, what's the challenge ahead? You're right. There, that sort of incidental or that one time violation. Perhaps it's been short-lived, is much different from a relationship where there's been repeated affairs or a couple where the involved partner is now really romantically, emotionally involved with the outside person. Because it makes a difference for what you need to do early on. For the couple to begin recovery, there has to be some boundaries put in place if that outside relationship is still ongoing, either on a sexual level or on an emotional level, it's much more difficult to get in there and to start making repair. And the reason is because the threat is ongoing, the threat to security, the threat to trust. Absolutely, that, that assessment of the outside relationship, whether it's still ongoing, whether the outside person is still, you will, lingering in the shadows and represents a threat for re-engagement is one of the early sort of steps in working towards stabilizing the couple's relationship. One of the big contribution before we talk about the multiple phases of this type of work is from the get-go, you, and it's even reflected in the title, the subtitle of the book that there, these are two separate decisions. The first you know, to forgive, and then only after you have gone through that process, the, this, the deciding whether to stay in the relationship is a separate decision, which I think is also uh, actually reassuring to clients and not lumping them together as previous therapies or approaches have done. We're going to come back to this as we talk through, okay, what are the stages of recovery? But I want to say before even we do that, that the topics of forgiveness, the sort of the forgiveness work can't really happen until previous goals of the therapy have, have been achieved. This, the couple has to restore stability in the relationship. They have to begin to reestablish routines. They have to understand how did this come about. And only after that's already been completed can they begin to think about forgiving or moving on or however they sort of label that sort of uh, process and make a decision about whether or not to stay in their relationships. But before we do that, let's think about what are the possible outcomes for a couple where there's been a little affair. So I think about it this way. There are fundamentally, there are four possible outcomes for a couple. They can decide to stay together as a couple. And they can either restore, or for some couples, it's the first time create a healthy 
secure and joyful relationship. That's our goal. Um, couple could stay together. So this is a second outcome. They could stay together, but not create or restore a healthy relationship. They will continue to engage in, in high conflict, recurring resentments, or perhaps they drift into a really detached, emotionally alienated relationship. That's not a good outcome. The other two outcomes, of course, then are they could move on separately, but they can move on separately in a healthy way. The partners have better understandings of themselves, of each other. They have a better understanding of what's necessary to make a relationship work. They prepare themselves to have new, healthy, joyful relationships. They stop punishing and hurting each other. That's also a good outcome. Or fourth, finally, they could move on separately, but do it in a really toxic, unhealthy way where they continue to either hurt or punish each other, or they toxify their co-parenting relationship if they have children, or they could remain so damaged and so hurt that they can't really create new healthy relationships. Those two positive outcomes, whether they stay together or whether they move on separately and apart, but in healthy ways, both of those healthy outcomes require some form of forgiveness, some form of finding internal peace, internal balance, letting go of efforts to punish. Those other two outcomes, the negative outcomes, whether they stay together or whether they move on separately, is where that forgiveness hasn't been achieved. I'm really clear with couples from the outset. Here's my goal. My goal is to help you make healthy decisions, whether you stay together or whether you move on separately. My goal is to help you do that in a healthy way where you preserve your dignity, your own integrity, where you're able to have joyful, secure, vulnerable relationships. Whether you stay together or whether you move apart, that's a decision I want us to come back to and revisit down the road. But the goal really is about your own healthiness, your own mobility to move on, move forward. Yeah, I love that. So whether you stay together or you don't, there's a healthy path and a not so healthy path with those four outcomes. Talk about the three phases. They are the most fundamental way of thinking about working with couples recovering from an affair. Let me just label them and then flesh them out a little bit. The three phases are these. The first phase is you just try to deal with the impact. We call it absorbing the blow or managing impact. It's chaotic. It's crazy making when an affair first becomes known. It creates all of that sort of disequilibrium, oftentimes for both partners, certainly for the injured partner. And so the goals in that first stage, absorbing the blow, are just about restoring some stability, getting the partners re-engaged in just daily routines, making sure that the kids are being fed and making sure there's food on the table, making sure bills are being paid, making sure that they don't do additional damage. I use that phrase with couples, just don't do more damage and they can do damage to themselves. They can do damage to each other. They can do damage to their relationship with outsiders. That first stage of work is always just about control the impact, prevent further damage, 
create a base so that they can then begin to understand how this has come about. Very quickly on that area, because we get a lot of questions around this from clinicians. So in setting that initial boundary, as many times the therapist is the first responder, there is, was in my class of couples therapy students, there was quite a debate on this, that you should put the boundary around and not tell anybody because once you tell somebody else, a family member or friend, they can never look at the relationship the same way again. And, and then they lose faith in the couple and it causes guilt or shame. And the other opposite line of thinking is, no, you need people in addition to the therapist to talk to for an outlet of people that are healthy and supportive. So in sending the boundary, I would you could say a little more about that, about how you negotiate with the couple, who to tell, who not to tell, what to tell, and then uh, your thoughts on should the injured partner ever have contact with the third party? Let me preface my thoughts on that this way. There are principles to follow. How those get sort of operationalized for a whole couple has to be informed by the circumstances. It's really not, do I tell no one or do I tell everyone? It becomes, who do I draw on for emotional support in good, healthy, informed ways? Choosing someone that can offer support, who you can confide in, who, who's going to support you again, uh, whatever decisions you make, whether it's to stay with your partner or to move on separately. Someone who doesn't have an ax to grind. Someone who, whose relationship with your partner, if you decide to stay together as a couple, isn't going to be toxified by knowing that there's been an affair. I think that's the dilemma is identifying the right people to draw on for emotional support. And in terms of having contact with the outside person, most of the time that doesn't go well. Now, I'm not going to say that it can never go well. Sometimes it's an act of empowerment for the injured partner to confront the outside person to say, okay, I want you to know that, that I know about this. This is no longer a secret. I won't tolerate it. And my partner and I are going to work together to restore our, our relationship. Sometimes that can work, but very often it doesn't. These are so emotionally charged. There's always a risk for increased for aggression, whether that's verbal aggression or physical aggression. I just advise persons be very thoughtful, careful about whom they tell, whom they involve, what kind of contact, if any, that they have with that outside person. Okay. If stage one is just a containment, how do we stop this immediate crisis and this hurting? Tell us about stage two. So stage one hopefully brings us to that stability. And then stage two is all about examining how this has come about. If we think of stage one as understanding what has happened, stage two is now stirring things back up. It's about exploring all the possible factors that potentially contributed to the affair. This is really important work for the injured partners. The only way of restoring some predictability. They need to know, can we be as certain as possible that this isn't going to happen again? And that assessment requires that you understand how the affair occurred, what the contributing factors were, 
and whether or not you've addressed those and minimized those. So we walk our couple through, it really is a guided discovery process. We walk them through different domains to think about what was going on in their relationship prior to and during the affair is the first domain. What was going on all around them in their outside world? Who was there that was distracting them from focusing on their relationship? Who did they need as sources of support who were not there? What were the intrusions? What were the distractions? What got in the way of prioritizing their relationship to keep it safe? That's the second domain. And then the last thing we do is we want both partners to take a hard look at themselves. What do I bring into the relationship? What is it about me that potentially placed our relationship at risk? And I want to make sure that I take this opportunity to say that the injured partner is never responsible for the participating partner's decision to have an affair. The involved or participating partner always has a choice. They, they, they could have made a different decision, even if the decision is, okay, I'm, I'm so unhappy in this relationship, I need to leave it. You can leave the relationship without having an affair. So the injured partner is never responsible for the other person's decision to have an affair. But they are co-creating a relationship. So I want both partners to think about how did you not take care of this relationship in the ways that you needed to in order to keep it safe? What do you... What is it about yourself and your history that you bring into the relationship that potentially puts this relationship at risk? How do you manage emotions? How do you try to create intimacy? How do you respond to your partner's efforts to bring intimacy? Once we've walked through all of those areas, and we take quite a bit of time to systematically work through all of that, the goal at the end of that stage two work then is having a, we call it a shared formulation or a shared understanding of all the factors that potentially put this relationship at risk for an affair. Yeah, I love how you said that the participating partner must take responsibility for what they did, but really stage two is about understanding all the multi-systemic factors that led up to that. And that leads to a shared understanding and narrative of what happened and why it happened, as you say, in stage two. Tell us about the final stage. The final stage then is drawing on that to make informed decisions, knowing everything we know, knowing what we know about ourselves, about who we've been as a couple, knowing what we know now about who we believe we could become as a couple, what's the best outcome for us in terms of moving forward? Shall we move forward and together? and continue to work on all of those contributing vulnerability factors. Do we move forward together or do we move on separately? And again, so separately from that, am I, am I ready to engage the question, the process of forgiveness? And so all of that happens in, in stage three. It's about exploring issues of forgiveness, looking at any remaining barriers to recovery and then reaching and implementing decisions about how to move forward in a healthy way. I think any of us that have done this work know how challenging it can be. I think one of the biggest ch challenges is that the timeline is always different. Even if a couple is committed to the work necessary to do the repair, the injured partner 
wishes they could just maybe snap their fingers and go back to normal. But when they've had a traumatic response and they are triggered left and right, it's very hard. Whereas the involved or participating partner just wants things to go back to normal. So inherently, I, I think one of the biggest challenges in doing this work for the last couple of decades is the two different timelines of both members of the couple. I'm curious what, in your clinical experience, what do you think some of the biggest challenges of working with affair couples are? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I absolutely agree. The, the most challenging stage of work is always that stage two work. It's also the most important stage, but it's challenging for a number of reasons. And one is those different timelines that you just mentioned, as you say, for the injured partner, Understanding how this happened and how it came about is absolutely critical to restore trust and security. And whereas for the participating partner, oftentimes the guilt, the remorse, the shame, low tolerance for their partner's emotional distress and chaos, the participating partner just wants to move on and let it be. And so one of the clinical challenges is dealing with those differences in that, those subjective timelines, just validating it. So, okay, look, it, it, the two of you are going to have different timelines for how to move forward on goals and encouraging the participating partner to understand that, to, to understand the injured partner's sort of need to understand how the affair came about, to have patience for that. To have tolerance of that, uh, in, in some ways, it's one of the ways that the participating partner can demonstrate their remorse and make reform. Uh, it's one way of saying, okay, this is uncomfortable for me. I wish we could just say, okay, it's done with and forget it and move on. Uh, but I understand that you can't do that. And my commitment to you is to be patient with that and to support you in that, even when it's uncomfortable for me. My gosh, well, what stronger statement of commitment could the person make? So that's how I try to deal with that, those differences in timeline during stage two work. What other challenges do you see? The, the challenge is a bit like working in an emergency room and being an ER doctor. When an, uh, an affair couple comes to you, they absolutely are, are like that patient in the ER. They're, they're hemorrhaging and you're just trying to stop the, the bleeding. It's challenging to work with couples when separate from the affair, they've never been a particularly healthy couple. They don't have ways of managing differences or they've never had good boundaries or one or the other of them has significant psychopathology. Or maybe they've been a low conflict couple, but also a really low intimacy couple. And so one of the challenges we have through working with uh, affair couples is it's like being that ER doctor and you're trying to just stop the hemorrhaging, but person's just been in a major car wreck, but you discover that, oh my gosh, there are all these underlying really serious health issues that compromises the patient's well-being. And, and when a couple comes in, in that way, where it's not just the affair, but there's a whole host of really individual or relationship dysfunctions, that's going to make it more difficult. The work is going to be harder. It's going to be slower. 
there's lots of change and, and healing that has to occur on multiple fronts. And you as a therapist need to know that. You need to be patient with it. You need to hold on to hope. You need to convey hopefulness to the couple, but know that it's going to be more challenging and help them to understand that it's going to be more challenging. We talk a lot about common factors on this show, and hope is certainly one of those. And as you were saying, if a couple, conversely, if this is a, a tragic event in any relationship, there's no way to spin it. But if a couple has a, a history of strength and being able to repair after other tears in the relationship and has protective factors built in, certainly, yes, we want to draw on that. I see a lot that even if the couple is doing their work through the stages and the involved participating partner is being transparent, rebuilding trust, uh, the injured partner is asking for reassurances and receiving them. Can't turn on the TV or listen to the radio or see the news without some type of infidelity or breach of trust being brought up. Couples will often come in and say, we were doing so good. And then I got triggered or sometimes, Doug, it's a temporal trigger. This time last year, we were doing this, or I looked at the date and now I now know what you were doing with the third party at this point last year. So I think another challenge is these triggers that both for the couple and for the therapist that come out of the blue many times. I'm curious yeah. what you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it really early back on in, in uh, stage one work, we try to help couples anticipate this and prepare for this. From a trauma perspective, we just label this as uh, you're going to have these flashbacks. And almost everybody has some understanding about what that word means. And I'll describe these as existing along a continuum at the most severe sort of end of that flashback continuum. It literally is almost a kind of a dissociative experience. Something triggers a response in you. You temporarily lose awareness of where you are and what's happening. You have a response. And so it's literally the same response that you had in the past to the original trauma. And that's at the most severe end. The, but there are lower levels of this same phenomenon. I, I describe them to couples as a kind of a, a painful reminiscence. You don't dissociate, but you know who you are and where you are and what's happening. But there is an emotional response that gets activated. And it can feel in the moment that emotional response may feel as powerful as it did the very first time, or it may be less intense, but it's still there. It's a reminder. There's sadness, there's disappointment, sometimes there's anxiety. And I want my couples to anticipate this. They're going to have a darn certain anniversary, you see the anniversary of their relationship or maybe the anniversary of discovering the, the affair. I had one couple experiences, they were traveling down the highway, they had just gotten to a point where they said, let's go and recreate the honeymoon type experience for ourselves. And they're driving down the highway and one partner sees a, 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 a hotel from a particular hotel chain. And she calls, oh, this is where you, this is the same kind of hotel where you met with your affair partner. And I want them to anticipate it because there are ways of dealing with that, both individually and relationally. And so in, it, in this example, the participating partner could say, I see it, I get it. What do you need? Do you need time just for yourself right now? Do you want to just sit together? Do you want me to hold you? Do you want to talk through it? 
what can I do to give you the, either the space or the support or the reassurance that would be helpful to you right now? So there are individual ways. Okay. I sometimes first say, I just know I need some time for myself. Give me half an hour or give me an hour. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not believing, but I just need some time to reconstitute and take care of myself emotionally. And then we can come back together. But understanding that phenomenon and those triggers, giving them specific skill sets for dealing with it, both individually and as a couple is what will protect them. I couldn't agree more. I have one last question for you, and it's a two-part question. You have been doing this for a while in your long and illustrious career, so I am curious, in your opinion, what are the biggest changes to the profession in helping couples recover from infidelity from when you started up until now? And that's a nice segue. The second part of that, this is the second edition of the book, both ones for clients and the one for therapists. They're both like uh, Bibles. Uh, to me and my work in the last 20 years. So I'm really curious of the updates in the second edition. Oh, Eli, first off, let me just thank you. Those are very kind words and they're very generous. So thank you for both. Yeah, gosh, what has changed in our profession over the last 15 years or so related to working with these couples? For me, the biggest change, and it's really the most exciting change for me is that is therapist awareness of infidelity is a really a very specific phenomenon and their eagerness for uh, getting help for resources, uh, their eagerness to have an intervention protocol specifically for working with these couples. It's not just marriage and family therapists that are eager to have these skills. And I think about over the last 15 years, I've done so many different trainings for the Department of Defense, social workers, psychologists, chaplains, in addition to marriage and family therapists. So it's really exciting to me to see just how explicitly and in many ways profoundly the field has come to appreciate the importance of the phenomenon of infidelity, but also come to appreciate that there is a specific way of working with these couples, that's going to be more likely to help. And in openness to training in that area. And just in the U.S., we've now introduced this intervention protocol to South America and South Africa, Southeast Asia. It's really gratifying to see the uptake on this. And our books, both this book for couple and our clinician's manual for working with couples have been translated into multiple languages around the world. That's a huge change. It's a huge development. And, and it is very gratifying to see our work having impact and making a difference in how therapists work. Well said, my friend. When you think of all of the things, this is a question that I ask the people that have had a career like you've had, because this is just one part of your career the last 20 plus years that we've talked about. But when you think of uh, the mark you want to leave on the field of systemic therapy, couple therapy, family psychology, however you want to define your sphere of influence, uh, what are you the most proud of and what would you like your legacy to be, Doug? Oh, gosh, that's an interesting question. The legacy for me would be having an impact out there in the world, not just with 
couple of therapists. It's, it's been a tremendous privilege to do what I do, to train doctoral students who are studied to work with couples, to work with chaplains. My gosh, I've probably trained over a thousand chaplains over the last 15 years. And each of those chaplains are training other chaplains. They're working with men and women who are, are working to protect you and me. That's been uh, an incredible privilege to do that. But in addition to that, I get emails, I get phone calls from couples all over the country, uh, couples from abroad who will write me or will say, we've worked with your book, we were working through this, we need some additional help, might you work with us? I know that our book has, is, has, has reached, come on, it's now approaching almost 100,000 couples out there who have gotten this book to use as a resource to recover and to be able to help couples to cover some true There's no greater privilege, and there's nothing that brings me to the, the level of joy than in being a participant in that process. Oh, I don't think there's anything more powerful than being part of a change event in the room and being part of this forgiveness process that we've been talking about this hour and to see that you have reached so many people and obviously need to again recognize Don Balcom, friend of the show, and uh, Christy Coop, Gordon, your collaborators in this very influential work. And I'm so happy that you were able to be with us here on the podcast today, Doug Snyder. Thank you. And thank you again. For, it's been a privilege to be here with you, Eli. And thank you also for reminding our listeners that work like this is never by one person. It's always by a team of persons. Don Baltham and Chrissy Gordon have been wonderful colleagues over the years. Uh, they've been good friends. And I doubt that any one of us could have done this on our own. It's been a privilege working with them. For MFTs, addressing mistrust in couples due to alcohol misuse can be one of the greatest challenges. Soberlink is your ally in this journey. Trusted for over a decade, it delivers real-time, discreet proof of sobriety, fostering accountability and healing in your clients. Elevate your practice with a solution that meets the core issues head-on. Make every session more impactful. Request free materials from Soberlink. That's www.soberlink.com slash A-A-M-F-T. Soberlink.com slash A-A-M-F-T. Immerse yourself, share with clients, and witness transformation. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast. Thank you so much, Doug Snyder. Big things going on in the AAMFT. We are now slightly over a month away from AAMFT signature event, the 2023 Systemic Family Therapy Conference, fully virtual, October 25th through the 27th. This conference, sponsored by AAMFT, is the most comprehensive event providing systemic thinkers with personal and professional development, cutting-edge skills and training. As always, during these three days, the event will examine the role of systemic therapy in various workplace settings across the communities and across the globe. 
It takes a holistic approach to continuing development of all family therapists and our flagship event, again, completely virtual in 2023, bringing together attendees from every continent in the world, eliminating barriers to access that traditional face-to-face conference has. Uh, so many great speakers. There's over 70 sessions, 40 plus speakers. You can virtually network with attendees. It's very affordable. If you are a student and you are a member, a student member of AAMFT, it's absolutely free. What an amazing value. If you're a professional member, it is $200. If you're a non-member, but you listen to the podcast and you're a natural systemic thinker, it's only $250. Please go to networks at aamft.org slash conference, the 2023 Systemic Family Therapy Conference. Be there. All right, we appreciate your feedback. As always, feedback from you, the listener, drives our content as we are well into season number five. You can check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. I am partial to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please leave a review and star rating. Helps us rise through the ranks of mental health podcast and you can get a hold of me eli at northstarcounselingcenter.com also check me out at elikaram.com that's e-l-i-k-a-r-a-m.com there you see everything that's going on with me including two books that i have out right now with current soon to be president of the amft in 2024 bringing common factors to life and Couple and Family Therapy, Eli Karam and Adrian Blow, which is really the spirit of this show, talking about what makes effective therapists, how to strengthen that therapeutic alliance, how to tap into things like hope and bring out the most in our client systems. Also, if you are a young professional and you're studying for the national exam, please be sure to check out Marriage and Family Therapy National Exam, your study guide for success that I wrote last year through Springer publishing. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.